New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today we're going to explore how we might see ourselves more clearly, not as separate, you and me, but as one with the rest of life. It's easy to believe the narrative in our minds that tell us who we are. It's easy to succumb to the mind's whims, moods, and motives. It's very convincing. However, the fundamental self, this true self, is what our guest today calls the no-self. The no-self is not a concept, it's not an idea or theory. It occurs altogether independent of our thinking process or our belief in it. It's the ocean we live in. It's the interconnection of all things, including us. So how does this lead us to a better, more grace-filled life? Today, we'll be exploring how shifting our perception of who we are can lead to a more fulfilling life with our guest, Dr. Kate Gustin. Kate Gustin is a clinical psychologist who received her education from Princeton University and the University of California at Berkeley. She's worked in a variety of settings such as outpatient psychiatry, community mental health clinics, VA hospitals, college counseling services, and currently in private practice in San Rafael in Northern California. She integrates the science of positive psychology and leads classes, workshops, and trainings throughout the region. Dr. Gustin offers no self-help, an approach to identity, relationship, and responsibility that draws on the spirituality of Eastern wisdom traditions and advances in Western psychology. She's the author of the No Self-Help Book, 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. Join us for the next hour as we explore the true self with our guest, Dr. Kate Gustin. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Kate, welcome. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here with you. Well, I'm delighted to have you. I'd love to start off. uh, How did you actually come to this perspective of no self or Mm. this this approach? Mm -hmm. There were a number of different influences. Uh, One had to do with my clinical work and meeting with hundreds of clients over the years. You know, I, I 
observed that each person would come in with a very particular narrative, a story about who they believed themselves to be. Um, and, and usually these stories were somewhat um, stressful. You know, they had concepts of themselves as broken or damaged or dysfunctional. And after a while, it kind of struck me, you know, how is it that each person is carrying this particular image of themselves that is so at odds with really the capable, lovely person I was seeing in front of me, right? They were, they were kind of living their mind's reality, and it was so out of sync with their strengths and their capacities. And, and, and of course, this wasn't just the experience of my clients. It's, you know, my personal experience as well. There, there are ways in which I, um, as everyone else, can get caught up in sort of your mind's version of who you are. And often that storyline is one that is um, constraining, and it's one that really limits us in terms of our potential. And so, you know, simultaneously with my clinical work, I was doing my own personal inquiry into uh, Eastern wisdom traditions and meditation and retreats with different spiritual teachers and came to see that there was a different way of knowing myself, um, one that wasn't language-based, one that wasn't a construct of my mind, and and personally came into contact with um, just a, a more peaceful, expansive sense of who I was, and, and really who I was along with who other people are, and, you know, kind of implications for what the world is. And I really wanted to bring that to my clinical work, but also to um, kind of a wider audience through this book. So how do, going back to that idea, how mm -hmm. do we start to construct that idea of self? Maybe as a baby, we didn't really have it, but at some point we feel, oh, this is who I am. This is myself. Exactly. Well, you know, a lot of research shows that there are certain developmental periods, you know, that are usually around a year and a half to two when the capacity for language develops, where, um, you know, uh, children are, they're, they're creating these narratives. They're, they're using language in their own sort of sense of being embodied, right? You know, their physicality, along with language, um, puts in place a certain idea of who they are. And then this gets reinforced by their environment. So certainly the messages that they receive from their caregivers, their parents, their peer group, and, and on, that uh, reinforces or it co-creates this storyline. And then over time, it gets reified. And, and people start living according to that storyline, not necessarily according to their encounter with experience in a fresh way. So language mm -hmm. is a very important part of this. Yes, because what I'm when I talk about the self, I'm talking about the self-referential capacity that we have, basically a language-based story um, that it, it, it creates this kind of narrative of who we are. That's that's just one part of our mind. It's it's just one functioning in the brain, and and it's it's. Through um, fMRI studies, it's been linked with very specific cortical structures. So it's a self-referencing capacity that we have, uh, that primates have, 
Um, other mammals don't, and it's you know quite a um, evolutionary advantage. It, it gives us a lot of possibilities, but it's also kind of constraining to the extent that we take it at face value. You know, we believe every word as you know fact about who we are. So, all right, let's talk about that. So uh-huh. we're, we're we've developed this narrative of who we are, and I know that you talk about how there are constraints. You use the word constraints, and there are risks and myths about that. And so let's talk about Mm -hmm. what are some of the myths Mm -hmm. that that crop up when, Mm -hmm. as we get stronger and stronger into this narrative, our story, so to speak, Mm -hmm. of who we are? Mm -hmm. Well, some of the myths or the constraints have to do with, um, you know, believing the content of our thoughts. I mean, we, you know, we generate thousands, tens of thousands of thoughts a day, and not all of them are true or useful or relevant or even helpful. And, and yet, we, because collectively and individually, we have, our sense of identity has become so merged with the contents of our minds, we, we don't really do much you know, a selective picking and choosing of these thoughts. You know, if something comes to mind, especially if it has emotional charge to it, we tend to really believe it. And, you know, it, it, it informs who we think we are, who we think other people are. But it's it's just one passing kind of object of consciousness. And then I, I'm thinking that if, if um, we're believing that, it becomes... A kind of confining, and you use the word constraint. Again, I'll uh-huh. mention that. It sort of defines us. And when you talked in the uh-huh. beginning about seeing these clients, yes. and you see them with all this possibility, but they see themselves yes. as something very, very small. And in that way, we're believing, as you say, believing something, and then we act on it as if that's the truth of who we are. Exactly. And then it just reinforces it and perpetuates it. And, you know, a lot of these stories aren't, you know, it, we didn't develop them necessarily consciously or with our consent. You know, these were, uh, this was the conditioning that we were exposed to as children. You know, the roles we were given in families or just ways of coping with difficult circumstances growing up. And yet, they, you know, we're quite impressionable when we're younger and and those habits of thought continue on later in life to sort of dictate um, you know who we think we are and yet I yeah. I know that <laughs> you mentioned in in your work uh, mm-hmm. which is very very unique in some ways mm-hmm. you mentioned um, how we all go to self-help work we, yes. we we're always going to the the next book or the next workshop or the next you know uh, to improve ourselves yes. and you're saying uh, this is an endless process I think <laughs> I'd love for you to make a comment on these on this work that we're all working so hard at right well because you know I mean the premise of the book and this whole approach is that there is no sort of core kernel of self. It's it's a process. It's a selfing. It's a storytelling. It's a construct. And yet we're trying to sort of, um, I don't know, kind of uh, obtain these nuggets 
of, of wisdom or changes in our behavior to sort of make it a different kind of core self. And I think, I don't know, there's, there's a whole misunderstanding at the root of that that we really have to look at. I mean, I, you know, I think there's, there's something very honorable about this effort to just be our best self. And, and I definitely go with that in therapy. It is most of the work that I do in terms of helping people construct a story that is wholesome and that's healthy. But really, I've seen the limitations of storytelling in general. We, we, we need to sort of look at a little deeper underneath that. Who are we if, if we don't attach to the contents of our thoughts? I mean, even if they're positive thoughts, even if it is the most compelling storyline ever, um, you know, that's, that's just one version. It's just one moment in time. I can think of a, a book title. I'm not sure if it's around, but it's it just really occurs to me. Change your story, change your life. Yes. Oh, there have been books that have been written on that. And, uh, you know, it, the idea is that we kind of create the narrative that makes our life worth living. And, it, you know, and that's a fine framework, but this book is trying to go a little deeper and to see, you know, is there something underneath that? Is there sort of a mystery to who we are that is not language-based, that is not, you know, something that's constantly in need of fine-tuning and fixing and, you know, storytelling? Like, what is that underneath it? We'll be talking about that in just <laughs> one moment. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Dr. Kate Gustin, and she is the author of The No Self Help Book, 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, and that's no-selfhelp.com. That's no with a dash, selfhelp.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Kate Gustin, and she's the author of The No Self-Help Book, 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. Kate, who am I if I'm not yes. myself? So <laughs> you're saying we're going to go deeper into that. What, what is that? Right. Well, that's, that's a good question, you know, and this is something that, uh, you know, mystics and scholars and philosophers have grappled with 
throughout the ages. You know, what, who or what are we? And I, I would approach it as a what are we, right? You know, because the who part, um, there are certain assumptions in that. You know, who sort of assumes that there's sort of a person, a sort of an individual mind and an individual body. And, and, and clearly that is our sort of day-to-day perception of things. That is sort of the conventional reality as we live it, that who we are um, – we are as our brains dictate and, you know, as our minds tell us. But my approach, um, at least in this book, is coming from Eastern wisdom traditions. Well, no self is derivative from not self, uh, the, the word in Pali, uh, anatta or Sanskrit, anatman, which means not self. And the idea in these wisdom traditions is that we do correctly perceive that we have thoughts and feelings and moods and perceptions and such and form, but that's not our true nature, that those are passing phenomena and that the, our true nature is what's, what resides underneath that. And, and that's what I'm referring to as no self. So before language, before a thought even comes to mind, there is a, a, um, a consciousness that's here. There is an awareness that is present. Um, that's, you know, we can probably have a common denominator of shared experience with that. Now, there is some difference of opinion. Like, is that consciousness a, a material byproduct of the brain, right? Is it an emergent property of the brain? Or is it a primordial consciousness, something that, you know, is kind of a, the, the ground of being, something out of which form arises. I, I, mm-hmm. I know I've mentioned on the program before, and our listeners are going to get tired of hearing this, but it's that quote from the famous physicist Max Planck. Hmm. And he talked about, in 1931, he talked about consciousness as being all-pervasive. Yes. That it is, it, all matter is derivative of consciousness. And the, the part of the phrase that he said that really gets mm-hmm. me going is, he said, you cannot get behind consciousness. No. That, that is, you, there's no above, below, side, and in, in, it's all pervasive. And that's exactly. what you're talking about, yes, I yes. think. Is that's that exactly right? Like that's, you know, if you boil it down, like that is what we all are, you know, at the largest and the smallest level. And when we can get in touch with that, uh, you know, as an idea in an intellectual way, but also as a visceral experience, then, you know, that has tremendous implications for how we relate to ourselves and others and just, you know, the conventional reality as a whole. So give us an example. So uh-huh. here we are. I'm, uh-huh. I'm talking to someone, um, an uh-huh. acquaintance, and uh-huh. I'm having conflict with them. And I know that I need to talk about this whatever is going on between us. So I'm coming with some anxiety. Right. Now, if I am in that perception of my smaller self, yes. my, my little self or self, right. that conceptual self, uh, mm-hmm. then I might handle it in one way. So how would I handle that if I'm going to tap into this other perspective? Right, no self. Okay. So first would be just, you know, internally to get a little bit detachment from the content of your thoughts, right? So if your thoughts are saying, well, I need to convince this person that they're wrong or I need them to agree with me. 
So the first step would be just to relax that a little bit and just to notice, like, oh, there's my selfing happening. You know, there's my self wanting to sort of, you know, exert its will on another person. All right. So what else is true right now? You know, what's going on in addition to that thought process? And it would be inclusive, right? So it would include sort of taking a deep breath. It would include an awareness of, you know, the space around oneself. It would include uh, a sense of some kind of presence that wasn't about what my mind was needing to see happen. You know, it was, and then, you know, once things soften up in that way, it actually allows for a recognition of the other as not necessarily one's adversary or an object of, you know, what you're trying to get from them. But, uh, you know, just even looking into the other person's eyes, um, you start to see like, oh, they too share this consciousness. Like there's an awareness there. Like even though, you know, at, at a certain first surface level, we're engaged in a, in a dialogue or a debate or an argument, underneath that, there is the same... Uh, how would we describe it? The same vitality, the same um, kind of spirit that animates us, right? That is giving rise to this, you know, very lively discussion. But there's something underneath, uh, you know, like the content and the projections um, that is common ground. Now, it, it takes a little while to get to that. You know, in the mm -hmm. midst of an argument, it's unlikely most people are going to be able to, to soften their stance and relax enough. But it, it is a practice. Well, if, if we practice mm -hmm. it and we find that mm -hmm. things work out well if we mm -hmm. do it, then we're reinforced for that. Yes, we, exactly. Because this, this leads to more peace. It, it leads to a more spacious way of being. It leads to greater sort of interpersonal you know, harmony. I mean, you know, it, it's only full of benefit. So I think that mm -hmm. you're, you're asking us to enter into this kind of conversation with some sort of humbleness ah, or yes. also curiosity. Yes, the spirit you do it in is very important, right? Because it's, you know, it's beyond what the mind can fathom. So that is inherently humbling. You know, our, our ego, our self's notion of what it knows and what it, um, you know, can achieve, like that's, that's not really going to be helpful here. So, so the self is humbled and there is, a, you know, something that's really fascinating about this. You know, how is it that most people are not operating, you know, from this place? I mean, it, it, it's what operates through them. But there isn't yet the conscious recognition that this is what's taking place. And it's, you know, there's something just so fascinating. You have mm -hmm. an exercise in the book that I found mm -hmm. really fascinating. Oh, uh-huh. And it was just kind of an <laughs> exercise. You said, okay, try it. And it was like you were saying, drop all personal pronouns. Ah, and yes. to, to just give, let's say, a letter to people <laughs> instead of saying he, she, me, I, whatever. That is. So can you describe that? Because I thought it was very useful. <laughs> right. It was just a thought experiment. But, you know, it, in the book I say, let's just give the, the letters TJ, you know, uh, instead of any personal pronoun. So uh, instead of, like, if I were to say I broke my leg, it'd be TJ broke its leg. Or if the, you know, you were to say the forest is sh shrinking, TJ's forest is shrinking, or, you know, this person is experiencing suffering, TJ is experiencing suffering. So, so essentially what it does is it, it reminds us that there, there, it, there aren't these divisions between people or between countries or between landscapes. Like those are, 
Those are arbitrary divisions that are created in the mind, you know, and again, through language. Um, you know, and so if we take away the pronouns or the personal pronouns, we, we come back into touch with uh, how there really aren't boundaries or borders or divisiveness. So that's the concept that's really the core mm-hmm. that that the me and I, that separateness yes. to to really feel or experience that oneness. Mm. Uh, and you're saying that that can happen in an everyday sort of thing. It's not like this one moment of enlightenment or something that we strive for, but it's something that I think you use the analogy. One of the analogies you use in the book is um, it's like tuning into the sky, knowing that we're maybe clouds passing through yes. or weather. Can you? Exactly. It's Well, and it, it really allows you to make a choice. Like, where do you want to rest your sense of identity? You know, with these, you know, set seemingly separate clouds and weather fronts as they come in, you know, sort of the, the contents of our mind or the occurrences of our life. And or do you choose to rest your identity in, in what holds it all, right? Here's this blue sky. It's not going anywhere. It, it doesn't have any judgment or agenda. It doesn't, um, you know, rate one cloud as more or less than another cloud. I mean, that's, it's so ridiculous, right? It's, you know, it's this incredibly clean field of awareness, of consciousness that is what we are. So why not rest our identity there? You've used the term several times in our conversation, mm-hmm. the term selfing. Ah, selfing. As, as a verb. I mean, whenever I, mm-hmm. I would type that into my computer as I was taking notes for myself for this mm-hmm. interview, there was no uh, autocorrect for <laughs> selfing. They, they just, they, the, the computer just did not compute. Yes. Word, the word, word, Microsoft Word did not commute, compute the word selfing. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to change yes. uh, that idea. But <laughs> what do you mean by selfing? Well, it's a reminder that really what we are is an ongoing process. We are uh, constantly sort of an evolution, uh, you know, a process of becoming. You know, each next moment there is something that arises within us and through us, you know, whether in our behavior or whether in our you know, sensory or emotional experience. Uh, so, you know, this notion, again, that there's a solid fixed, continuous self, that is, it's just not true. And I think using the word selfing, is, it's helpful. It reminds us that, you know, each moment is a fresh, clean slate, and we can sort of come to, to see what emerges. You know, it, 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 there's so much potential in approaching ourselves in that way. And I can think of ourselves, let's say, as teenagers. Uh-huh. Often a teenager will have that question well, who am I? What is my identity? I mean, we really struggle, yes. especially maybe all of our lives, but but especially at that time in our lives, we really struggle with who am I? Right. And you're saying, if what would you say to mm-hmm. that teenager if mm-hmm. they said, golly, who am I? Can you help me know who I am? Who ah, am I? Well, I would what say, would you what say? a great question. And I'm so glad you're interested. And well, let's let's just check in with your awareness right now. What's coming through you right now? How, how's your body feeling in this moment? Oh, what, what are your thoughts coming up with right now? All right, let's let's check in in an hour. Let's see tomorrow what arises, depending on what happens during your day at school. So you you build in this understanding that things change, and that's as it should be. 
you know, and research studies have shown that when people have a more fluid, flexible, spacious sense of who they are, they're they're happier. There's, um, you know, they're just more effective in their lives. And, and cultures that have a, a more kind of interdependent sort of construal of self, you know, self as um, developed in relationship, as contact with its environment, you know, those notions of self tend to be kind of healthier. I'm here with Dr. Kate Gustin, and she is the author of the No Self Help book, 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, no-selfhelp.com. And the dash is not spelled out. It's a dash, no-selfhelp.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Kate Gustin, and she's a psychologist and the author of the No Self-Help Book, 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. And Kate, we've talked a little bit about selfing as mm-hmm. a verb, as a process, we're a process. And you also talk in the book, and I love this part mm-hmm. of the book, you talk about smart Selfing, yes. So there's there's a way to really be smart about our our selfing process, and um, I'd love to go through some of those. Like sure. one of them is waking up, mm. and and mm-hmm. within that waking up, and you've already mentioned this a little bit in the last segment. Uh, you have some wonderful, useful questions that ah. we can ask of ourselves. Yes, yes. So so waking up, first of all, is referring to waking up in the morning. It's not the waking up to sort of an enlightened state of being. So just to clarify. So when you wake up in the morning, you know, usually the, you know, the mind is often running, you know, with thoughts about how well did you sleep or what's ahead of the day? You know, what, what did you do yesterday? What shouldn't you have done? So so smart selfing is is... Selfing judiciously. In other words, you're, you're choosing what thought content you want to engage with. We can't control the thoughts that come up because they come up spontaneously. But we can ask a few questions to just direct our focus towards the thoughts we want to, you know, engage with. So a question could be something like, you know, is this thought helpful to me? You know, it, it, is this a useful uh, way of spending my mental energy right now. You know, do I really need to review everything I did yesterday in order to just get out of bed and begin my day? Right? Is it, you know, how stressful is this particular train of thought? That's another helpful question. You know, if I choose to go with it, you know, do I really want to be bound to it? You know, is this ruminative? Have I rehashed this enough in my thought process? Do I have to go over it again? So we're just reminding oneself that uh, we have choice. Just because a thought comes up, you, you don't have to be at its mercy. 
You get to choose. Hmm, what's a useful way of directing my thinking right now? And you also have the option of not engaging with thought at all. Like, what if I just get up and take a shower and eat breakfast and, and focus on the, you know, just the physical intimacy of those activities rather than reserving most of my attention to my thought process? Right. Very good. Very good. Then uh, talking about eating breakfast. Yes. Uh, you know, our culture, let's talk about eating. Uh, mm. We're, we're uh, obsessed yeah. with eating. I mean, from, from weight loss and all of that to the kind of diet, whether we're vegan, whether yes. we're gluten-free, whether we're organic, whether we're, you know, it uh. just goes on and on and on. And so what do you have to say about eating and being right. uh, smart selfing? Right. So, so we get a choice here. I mean, you know, there, there may be a whole slew of thoughts that bombard us the moment we sit down to a meal or as we prepare to make a meal. And again, you can be selective, not in terms of the thoughts that come up, but in terms of which thoughts you want to engage with. You know, I, I, I would recommend let's just, you know, have thinking come up, but have it be kind of in the back background, right? We don't want to silence our thought process because that's just a battle with ourselves. But let's just uh, redirect our attention to the actual sensory experience at hand, right? Like, what does this uh, mouthful of food taste like? What does it smell like? What's the texture like? Um, you know, just to show interest in that. We don't have to do a whole dissection or analysis of it because that's just more thought process. But it's, it's redirecting our focus to what's also true. Um, mental commentary is just one option. There are other things to attend to during a meal. Like there can be just an intuitive sense of, hmm, am I full? Is this, um, you know, is this satisfying for me? It, we don't have to have a whole battleground of thoughts just as we, you know, eat something. Right. And you've said several times that it's a battle to stop our thoughts, yes. that, that, that that's not maybe appropriate. That, so it's not a matter of stopping our thoughts, but it's, you're constantly referring to redirecting them, yes. so to speak. Yes. It's sort of imagining that our, like our awareness or sort of our, our psychic space is large enough that it holds not only you know, thoughts coming and going and emotions coming and going, but there's also... A consciousness there that that isn't just about the thinking or the feeling or the physical sensations. There's sort of a, this primordial pre-existing awareness. And if we focus on that or just basically rest as that and, and eat a meal in the company of that, huh, what kind of experience does that allow for? Exactly. Very good. We've gone into our day. We're either oh. at work or school, or we're we're progressing in our day. So, um, what mm -hmm. advice mm. do you have for mm -hmm. us going into our day? Well, in general, if you notice that uh, the direction your thoughts are bringing you is a direction that so you've revisited many times before, there's no new information, and it feels heavy, and it feels constraining, and it feels um, negative, then you can choose, you know, do I want to walk this path? Again, those thoughts may come up and, and try to pull for your attention, but they may not be so constructive. So, so the question to ask yourself is, how helpful is this particular thought right now? So as I'm approaching something with some dread, like going into a meeting, let's say, with my boss, um, you know, my thoughts may be, you know, 
fortune-telling about the future, you know, imagining that the meeting won't go well. To the extent that I can pause, remind myself that this is thought process, it is not the truth of what's happening because it hasn't even happened yet, then I can disengage and have a healthy detachment from my thinking so that when I do approach the meeting, I'm able to sort of be present and available for what actually does transpire. So you're saying, like, let it be fresh. Yes. In your book, you you say to to really look at how your mind is pre-biasing. Yes. It's, it's biasing you towards the experience before it even happens. Yes. And that's what you're talking about, that not to go in with this bias of how it's going to happen exactly. before. So. Well, and right, and, and, and we don't have to bias in a positive direction either, uh-huh. right? I mean, you know, if it's helpful to, you know, give yourself a cheerleading kind of pep talk, you know, there's no harm in that. But it's important to really remember that the experience hasn't yet occurred. Because if we go and say, oh, it's going to be, we do those affirmations or whatever, yes. and then it kind of deteriorates and they say, well, we're closing down the company or something. <laughs> and it, right. Then we, we, we would be possibly attached to a certain outcome yes. of, of something positive happening. When that doesn't happen, then we might spiral into disappointment or anger or anxiety. Right. And this is, you know, just reminding ourselves that we have the capacity, we have the strength to sort of be available for life as it presents itself to us on its own terms. And, And then, of course, we can respond and, you know, try to change things or, you know, just be resourceful in how we, you know, go about working with what's given. But, you know, in the moment, can we approach it with some respect for what's you know, yet to arise rather than, you know, all these projections. So you're mm-hmm. not saying that that it's wrong to have preferences. No, no. I mean, So you know. where, do, where do preferences kind of take us down the rabbit hole? Mm. Well, when preferences start to conflict with reality as it's actually showing up, right? So I, you know, clearly I have a preference to, you know, not be in physical pain. I have a preference to do things that are pleasurable. Um, you know, if I'm stuck in a traffic jam and, you know, that situation is a given, and then internally I feel sort of at war with that and a lot of anger and resistance, you know, my preference is really, you know, it's a losing battle, right? Like what's what's going to win out here? Is it going to be the traffic jam or my preference that there is no traffic <laughs> jam, right? So we're, we're also just asking the question, what's effective here? And sometimes trying to impose our preferences on a reality that is already sort of being given to us is it's wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know it's the ego trying to exert some willfulness and at our own expense. Right, right. So going on with smart selfing, oh. there's an, another one, and I love this one. You talk about transitions ah. uh, when we're kind of between activities, and you suggest that this is a time. When there's a lot of mind chatter, the yes. possibility of a lot of mind chatter. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, it, there's not a right or wrong way to proceed here. You know, it, we are very entertained by the contents of our thoughts. And so, you know, if we're commuting from point A to point B and we want to be entertained by our thoughts and you know that that's what you're doing, go for it. But often we feel like we're at the mercy of our thoughts. Like, oh, my thoughts are going down a certain trajectory of, you know, painful um, you know, sort of imaginings of the future or rehashing old regrets. And so, you know, we're we're trying to remind ourselves here that we have a choice. 
if you if you want to be entertained by the contents of your thought, then you can choose to do so, but you can also rest without thought or, or without identification with whatever thoughts come up. I'm thinking mm. of the, the phrase that you use also, the museum of memory. Ah, right, like and, Louvre on steroids, yeah. right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the Louvre on steroids, <laughs> right. And, and like some of those memories might be regret. And those yes. seem to be the ones that really crop up. And I think that there's something in the back of your book as far as research goes mm-hmm. that those imprints, those negative yes. uh, happenings in our lives get more imprinted in the synapses of our brain than yes. maybe the positive ones. So that museum of memory might have a tendency to take us to not-so-positive thoughts. Right, and, and some of this is sort of evolutionarily designed. You know, we, we do tend to um, have a negativity bias sort of ingrained in terms of scanning for danger and, you know, being more on alert for what's not going well in our lives in order to keep ourselves safe. But that doesn't have to set the tone for our whole lives. And what the research has also showed is that, you know, when difficult or painful things happen, to the extent that we allow ourselves to feel the emotion and discharge it, then we're not as likely to have those events stick in our neural networks as much. There's sort of a natural discharge of that trauma. And and some very interesting research studies have shown that uh, people who who are subjected to the most horrific scenes, like um, going through the events of 9-11, you know, the, the research was looking at, well, what differentiated the people who went on to develop PTSD versus those that didn't, even though, you know, they were all, you know, experienced witnessing the same events. And what made the difference was for those who allowed themselves to feel the horror and the pain and the grief and the overwhelm, and then to experience that and get support with that and express that, those folks did not develop PTSD later. The people who suppressed their reactions, who tried to just sort of buck up and ignore it, they were more prone to developing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Kate Gustin, and she is the author of the No Self Help Book, 40 reasons to get over yourself and find peace of mind. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website. It's no-selfhelp.com. No dash, and the dash is a dash, not spelled out. No-selfhelp.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Kate Gustin, and she's the author of No Self-Help Book, 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. Kate, um, we were just talking about someone going through a pretty traumatic event. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned something like someone who gone through was present for 9-11 when the towers came down. Yeah. Uh, or, or any event like that that's just traumatic and how some people survive and thrive afterwards and other people get, get into PTSD and yes. post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how those that discharged that. Uh, and I'd love for you to mention mm-hmm. ways that we can, as, as human beings mm-hmm. encapsulated in mm-hmm. our bodies, uh, and we're more than our bodies, as we've yes. been talking about, but how we can uh, discharge well, by actually allowing oneself to to feel the the impact, you know, it's it's a little counterintuitive because you know these painful events um, are painful and they cause a lot of distress. But what research has found is that by trying to suppress that or avoid that um, or rationalize oneself out of one's emotions, it actually kind of binds it to one's nervous system and and, and leads to complications later. So this is really an invitation when a person's going through traumatic loss or injury or, you know, just what have you, to, to make some space and allowance for feeling what they're feeling, to, to bring in support, not be alone in that experience. And in therapy, there are particular techniques for working with the mind and body to further discharge um, these emotions. I use uh, EMDR eye movement desensitization reprocessing as a technique, and a lot of good research is coming out of that treatment approach for helping people thaw some of the frozen fight, flight, or freeze response that had gotten activated at the time of trauma and to help people, um, you know, integrate these traumatic experiences. So it's more than just solving it on a mental level. Oh, that right. It's, it's actually you're, you're working with the body because it's held actually in the cells of the body, too. Exactly. It's, they say somatically, I think, is the word. Used. Yes, yes. And mind-body medicine has come a long way in really seeing how interactive all of this is. I mean, we are, you know, our living system. So what goes on in our mind and goes on in our bodies have uh, affects each other. I think that there's another therapy uh, that is suggested is to allow the body to really, really shake. Mm, you can mm-hmm. see this with animals as they've gone through something traumatic and they're laying down there and it's something traumatic and you'll see their whole body yes. just shake, 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 shake. And then all of a sudden they get up and they run off. Right. And it's kind of like whatever happened just was completed and discharged. Exactly. And, and then their minds and bodies are available for what next can arise. Yes. It's somatic experiencing. Yes. That's the treatment yes. approach. Yes. So, um, you know, I would like to also hear in these last few minutes that we have together to talk about that smaller self as we construct that smaller self, how we become an I. Mm-hmm. You, you have a—it's a great uh, chapter in your book called Island, and it, it kind of a play on the word islands. Right. You know, we are not <laughs> an island unto ourselves, but you use the word I-L-A-N-D. Right. Island. And this is where we construct this way of being that is separate from everyone else. And we become this island. And within that, mm. 
it can be very lonely because we're walking around as if we are absolutely separate. Exactly. Being. Yes. And yes. And it, and again, it's um, it's a mistaken notion. It, it's sort of our mind's version of who we are. So we, you know, we feel like we are these sort of separate minds in these separate bodies, and we have a whole thought process that will try to confirm that for us. And then within the culture, you know, everyone is operating on that premise. So when you look around, it's, you know, people are acting as if they have to create bridges, you know, from one island or one individual to the next, and not recognizing that there's this same base of consciousness, the same kind of shared humanity, not just with humanity, but with all living beings and living systems. And, you know, if, if we allow ourselves to rest in that larger kind of community, there is less loneliness, there's less narcissism, there's less materialism, right? A lot of these practices that we do to try to shore up our individual self, you know, accumulation and, and seeking reassurance, it's it keeps us separated. And it's like a hamster on a treadmill. You don't really go anywhere because the self isn't, you know, a separate entity. It's essentially hollow at its core. So we're trying to fill in something and, you know, sort of protect our own survival. I think in in the book, you give a wonderful analogy of what we're trying to do there in that case of, of living in these separate islands. It's, you give the analogy of, it's like, we're the little wooden Pinocchio trying uh, to become a real live boy, right. not realizing. Can you kind of flesh sure. that out, please? Yeah, we're, we're, I mean, the, the self is commanding so much attention within our own minds, within the culture. And, you know, it, it's fundamentally a, a hollow construct. It's this idea, and we're trying to fill it in with by self-esteeming, right, by achieving and accumulating and, and producing enough. And it, it, it's not going to work because it's, it's a self-ing, it's a process. And it would be better to rest our sense of identity with what is truly continuous, what is truly sort of wholesome and absolving. And it is this consciousness. So if, if we're going to, to really live in this way— mm-hmm. And you've given us some of the questions that we use, like, uh, is this useful? Is this leading me to where I want to go? Is so if we notice our thoughts, and that you said we can't really stop our thoughts, but we can kind of move them not to the foreground, but mm-hmm. something else. And what would you? What do you have to say about truly living in a way? Mm that is so contrary to what our eyes are telling us. Our, uh, our, our physical eyes are telling, you are sitting there across from me. You are right. a body, and you look very separate from me, yes. and I'm sitting here, and I'm looking very—and all of that keeps getting reinforced all the time. Yes. So you're saying that we're, 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 we tap into something else. Do you hear what I'm trying oh, to Oh, absolutely, get? and I, I totally hear you. It's like— um, you know, like our day-to-day perception, walking around is as if the world is flat, right? It's very hard to conceive that the, the earth is round. But all it takes is, is one penetrating experience of the truth. Like, you know, an astronaut going into space, taking a picture of this beautiful round earth, bringing it back. And even though everyone's felt experience is still that it's kind of flat, 
they know that that's not actually the truth anymore. So this is a little bit like that. It may seem like an act of faith. It may seem aspirational here. Like, I just so feel like this separate body. Are you telling me that I'm really merged, that we're all one? It it actually is true. We can look more towards science now that is confirming this. You know, if, if the uh, doubting rational mind needs a little more evidence, that's fine. We can um, rest in our own lived experience, which is if we're not engaging in thought, there is still um, a you there that is kind of coming through, that isn't, doesn't have to effort itself. There is something that is sort of natural and emergent that you don't have control over. The ego, the small self, does not control. So we can, you know, have our day-to-day experience help inform this. But it does initially feel like quite a leap. It does. Yes. It does. And even using the word no self is just so contrary to yes. what our <laughs> eyes are telling us. And um, and you mentioned our rational mind, and this is another one in smart selfing, uh, has to do with decision-making. Oh. And we're very dependent on our rational mind when yes. we make decisions, when we make lists and pro and con, and we try and make these good decisions. So where mm-hmm. does... Where does this other deeper self come mm. in? Can we can we trust that mm-hmm. as part of our decision making? Well, I, I think first we should just invite it to the table, right? We're assuming that the rational mind is, you know, kind of the dictator here and it's in charge. And and actually there are a lot of other, let's say, committee members at the table. You know, there's our intuition, there's our body's experience, there's sort of the silence when we're not engaging in thought. Like each of these aspects of our experience can be you know, kind of checked in with to see, like, hmm, well, what would the decision look like from this part of me or from this expression of me? Uh, You know, our our rational minds are lovely. This is not, I'm not, the book is not trying to trash the self. It is just saying that the rational mind and this language-based narrative is a tool. We don't always have to pick up the tool belt. It doesn't have to decide our every waking move, even though it thinks it does. We can just Put down the tool belt at times, and then and then see. Oh, is it is it a little more peaceful without the tool belt? That that sounds like such a relief because a tool belt belt can be pretty heavy. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want to wear it while we're sleeping, yeah. and yet people wake up in the middle of the night and their minds are off and running, and they feel like there's the tool belt, and you know it's yeah. an so option. Release uh, <laughs> the tool belt and and. And maybe maybe hold hold the hammer still or the the, yeah. the screwdriver or whatever, but but not the whole belt is taking over our lives. I, exactly. I just want to thank you so much, Kate, for being with us today. It's been very informative, and you've been very articulate about this difficult concept. Mm. Well, thank you. My pleasure. It's such a joy to talk with you about it. Well, it's been our pleasure being with you today. I've been speaking with Dr. Kate Gustin. She is a psychologist and a author of the No Self Help Book, 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. Also, I just want to mention at the back of the book, mm-hmm. you have all this research. If, if people are interested in the yes. actual nitty gritty, here's the research. You have pages and yes. pages of research. So look at that too. But the website is no-selfhelp.com. No with the dash, not spelled out. No-selfhelp.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3675. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.